0: Hi, I'm Russ Streiner, Johnny from Night of the Living Dead, and you're listening to Dean of the Dead podcast. Remember this: they're coming to get you, Barbara. <laughs> you are there,
1: <laughs> Guys and ghouls, fiends and freaks, frankensteins and monsters Welcome back to episode number 3 of the Dean of the Dead Horror Podcast In this episode, Lady Mary and Michael brings you all the latest goings on out there in Horrorville And this week, Marco and I talk to a bona fide horror icon George A. Romero's friend and associate for over 60 years, the legendary Russell Striner. Oh, yeah, and he just so happened to play Johnny in Night of the Living Dead. So strap up, strap in, pour yourself one on the rocks, and tune into the fiendishly freaky tones of the Dean of the Dead horror podcast. Here we go!
2: Greetings you nasty batch, I'm Lady Mariam and this is the Blood Soaked Bulletin. Dario Argento is back with his first film in a decade, Black Glasses. With this movie, Argento is returning to his classic Italian giallo formula. Occhiali Neri will be about, quote, a sex worker blinded by a serial killer in a botched attack who takes in a young Chinese boy whose life has also been abruptly altered forever by the maniac's actions. He will become her ally in a terrifying struggle to see off the serial killer forever, end quote. The 1922 Swedish horror classic Hexen is being re scored by Canadian composer slash artist Elia Synesthesia. The documentary fiction hybrid explores the history of witchcraft, demonology, and Satanism. And keeping with music, the new horror comedy titled Studio 666, directed by Hatchet 3 filmmaker B.J. McDonald and filmed in secret during the pandemic, will be starring none other than the Foo Fighters. The film is being released this month and will be stuffed with creatures and other dark beings and teases that lead singer Dave Grohl might potentially be transforming into a monster himself. Snoop Dogg and Rodney Barnes are teaming up to create a new graphic novel, namely Tales from the Crip. The horror anthology series modeled after the classic EC comics will feature urban-themed horror stories. And speaking of marrying music and graphic novels, Titan Comics has announced a fully authorized graphic novel adaptation of the 1976 cult movie The Man Who Fell to Earth, starring David Bowie. The story follows an extraterrestrial played in the movie by Bowie, who lands on Earth in search of water to save his dying home planet, and is targeted by the US government. Shifting to motion graphics, it looks like the villains from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles are scheduled to get their own solo movies in 2023. This series of villain-driven TMNT films will be made exclusively for the Paramount Plus streaming service. And for you gaming fans, it looks like Netflix is finally going into production of a feature film based on the hit game Bioshock. Apparently, there are plans to build a, quote, potential cinematic universe, end quote, in inspired by the popular video game franchise. Only time will tell what this could look like. And last but not least, TikTok is giving us yet another creepy trend, leaving us questioning whether ghosts are in fact real. TikTok account The Cabin Cleaner is about the daily life and personal anecdotes of, well, a cabin cleaner in Tennessee and is usually a comedy account. However, as of late, she has uploaded content depicting a terrifying experience she had recently working on a late shift. Is the viral content real or a hoax? We'll have to watch the footage and decide for ourselves. That's all for now from the Blood Soaked Bulletin. Back to you, Dean.
1: This week's guest is a true horror icon. Born in Pittsburgh in 1940, Russell Striner started out working in the advertising field for several years while continuing film, television, commercial, and corporate production work. Striner became a friend and associate of the legendary George A. Romero for a vintage 60 years. The pair worked on various productions together before taking on their first feature film in 1967, the genre busting Night of the Living Dead, where Striner delivers one of the most iconic lines in horror history
2: A night with the dead who cannot die. A night of total terror.
1: Night of the Living Dead. Tonight, we have the honor and pleasure of welcoming Johnny himself onto the Dean of the Dead podcast. Would you please give it up for Russell Striner himself? Russell, welcome to the show. How are you, my friend?
0: I'm doing very well. Thanks
1: to see you. Good to see you, Dean. So we'll jump straight into it. Um, Russ, can you talk us through how and when you first ever met George Romero?
0: Um, George Romero and I met in 19, late in 1960, Um, he, George moved to Pittsburgh from the Bronx, New York, essentially a suburb of New York City. Uh, In 1958, he came to Pittsburgh to become, uh, to go to attend what was then called Carnegie Tech uh, University. It is now called Carnegie Mellon. Uh, George uh, was following in the footsteps of his father, uh, George also, uh, who was a a graphic designer of uh, primarily theatrical banners and posters and flags and that sort of thing. And George always had a knack, was a very, very good artist, had very good eye-to-hand skills uh, and was a very good designer. So he was going to Carnegie Tech for painting and design. Carnegie Tech was then and still now has an international reputation for their drama department as well as other departments, but in particular, their drama department turned out many, many uh, actors, actresses uh, that went on to make great names for themselves. Uh, George, one of the first people that George met on campus when, when he came to sign up as a freshman, a fellow by the name of Rudy Ritchie. This was in 1958, they met. That's when George came uh, to Pittsburgh. Rudy and I, uh, Rudy was attending uh, Carnegie Tech as well in the same painting and design department. Uh, Except Rudy, his strength was not uh, graphics. His strength was writing how exactly they got together as classmates I don't know <clears throat> but 50 tail end of 58 into 59 uh, when I came out of high school rather than going to college uh, I went to drama school here in Pittsburgh we had a very very uh, uh, robust uh, uh, community theater called the Pittsburgh Playhouse. And it was ranked as probably one of the three community playhouses in the country, along with Pasadena Playhouse and one other one which I'm I, I can't remember where where that was, but very, very active community theater uh, with Class A performances. There was also a school connected Uh, with the Pittsburgh Playhouse, in addition to having mainstay uh, stage productions. So since I was driving a meat truck during the day, uh, that's how I kept groceries on the table. Uh, I was going to night school as an actor, a theatrical performer, which is what I always wanted to do. Ever since I was a small kid, six or seven years old, I never wanted to be a fireman or an Indian chief or any of that stuff. I wanted to be an actor, which I must tell you uh, perplexed my family a bit because my family was pure blue collar. Sure. Um, and an actor just didn't quite fit into the Striner family mold. Uh, <clears throat> I, did have a, I do have a younger brother, Gary, who is six years younger than I am, um, and Gary never seemed to have any interest in acting, but I did. So I was going to night school for taking classes and driving a meat truck during the day. Now, full-time students at the Pittsburgh Playhouse were not allowed to audition for shows. They could work stage crew. They had to work stage crew. uh, But they were not allowed to uh, audition to perform in the shows. That was not the case for nighttime students, which I was. Mm. So I auditioned for a show uh, within a few months of when I started classes there and got cast in a show. And I started to do main stage productions in addition to um, going to classes at night, driving a meat truck during the day.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I, I got cast in a few shows, one of which I, was in a, I shared a dressing room with this guy, Rudy Ritchie, who had transplanted from uh, Carnegie Tech to the Playhouse because he wanted to be an actor as well and writer. So Rudy and I are cast in a show together. We have a lot of fun. We have a lot of camaraderie, and he said, you know, he said, I've got this guy that I met at Carnegie Tech, George Romero. He said, I've got to bring him over here and introduce him to you. I'm going to invite him to one of our shows. Fine. The first night I met George, he showed up, after the performance, he showed up backstage wearing a black cape with a red satin lining, spouting lines from C- Cyrano de Bergerac. <laughs> Excellent. And I thought, this, this, is, this is a hell of an introduction here. Uh, but George was in a theatrical environment, and of course, he wanted to be theatrical. So, my nose—I'm proud of my nose—and and he had the lines down. Wow! A lot of people don't know this about George. George was a very good actor, except he never did. All of his acting was um, whatever mood struck him. So. The mood that he was in the night I met him through Rudy, uh, he 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 was in a Cyrano de Bergerac phase, I guess. <laughs> um, at any rate, um, the the introduction went fine, um, and I didn't see him for a couple of months or talk to him for a couple of months. The show went on. Uh, Rudy and I were still doing our performances, and. Um, I got a call one day from George, saying, "Hey, I'm doing a film, and I would like to ask you to be in it. Would you perform one of the parts in this in this movie? It's called Expostulation."
1: I was going to ask you about that. It's a comedy short,
0: right? Um, it was a series of vignettes, not all comedies, mm. although there was one comedy episode. Um, about a, a tiny, tiny rocket ship that landed on earth uh, in an amusement park uh, and a girl had a snow cone in her hand and this tiny rocket ship lands in her snow cone. That that episode in Expostulations was a comedy. Other, other pieces of um, uh, expostulations, not so much comedy, but I showed up for my first day of filming, and I must tell you, I, I literally had no idea about film production itself. I didn't know the first thing about it, other than I went to see movies, and I knew what I saw on the screen, so I had that much awareness, but how movies were put together, not, not a clue. So I showed up. It was the the filming that day was successful. There was a second day, and that was equally successful. And I was, I got intrigued with the process just watching George work, watching the actors work. And um, after my show was over, the show that Rudy and I were in, I was cast in Macbeth um uh, and it was a it was a very very robust uh production of Macbeth um as a matter of fact I don't know if there's an American actor by the name of Robert loja I don't know if you know him or not mm. or his work uh, but he was cast as Macbeth and a woman by the name of Salome Jens was Lady Macbeth And uh, my friend Ray Lane was stage managing uh, this show, and um, because of working on Expostulations I got, um, Ray Lane was getting me out of rehearsals as the stage manager. And that wasn't fair to the production, it wasn't fair to me, it wasn't. All the way around, it wasn't fair. So I came to a point where I had to make a decision. Am I going to stick with making this movie expostulations and learning what filmmaking is all about? Or am I am I going to do what I'm supposed to do and start showing up at Macbeth rehearsals? <laughs> and I made the decision that I was going to stick with George and expostulations.
3: Wow, what yeah. a good
0: The the executive director of the Playhouse was a man by the name of Fred Burley, and he was very very theatrical. and he He held his cigarettes backwards. He smoked constantly, held his cigarettes backwards, and would take a puff of them. <laughs> and uh, When I I went to his office and I said, Mr. Burley, um, I I must tell you that I I I've made a decision. I'm going to drop out of the cast of Macbeth, uh, and uh, he looked at me, blew a puff of cigarette smoke at me, and said, "Russell, you'll never go anywhere." And that was it. The guy never spoke to me afterwards. Boy
1: was he? Wrong. I,
0: I was. Uh, I, I felt badly about it but I had to make a decision because there were too many conflicts. I also quit driving a meat truck at the time and jumped head into making expostulations with George. Incredible. Uh, No pay, of course, this was all learning, period. Um, George had some film experience. uh, When he was younger, early teenage, I think about twelve. His uh, his building project in New York, in the Bronx, was called Parkchester. Parkchester was a series of high rise apartments in which George lived in one of them. But Parkchester was like a small city unto itself, had its own police department, had shopping and that sort of thing. A lot of people lived there in these tall high rises. And George, when he was about 12, I think, made a, a movie with, with his amateur eight millimeter camera called Man from the Meteor, and it was George's first run in with the law. Um, part of Man for the Meteor storytelling was that uh, this man had to fall flaming from the sky. So, George and a pal of his threw a flaming dummy off of the roof of the Parkchester building. Um, George, being the camera operator, his pal on the roof with the flaming dummy. <laughs> and the Parkchester police were not too happy.
1: <laughs> what an incredible <laughs> story. He,
0: so he got hauled in by the police <laughs> <laughs> never Try, trying to make his uh, amateur film. At any rate, cut back to Pittsburgh. So from that time on, in by that time it was 1960, George and I started hanging out all the time uh, together. Uh, the two of us, because I didn't have a daytime job, he didn't have a daytime job. We were working on uh, uh, finishing Uh, expostulations, which never did quite get finished. And we were shooting at that time without sound. And we knew that we needed a musical soundtrack to help move the story along. So we said to ourselves, well, we have to go then where musicians are. We went to a company called Levere Music and Publishing Company, uh, who had a staff of musicians, they had a studio, and they promised us, after they got to meet us, see a sample of expostulations, um, they said they, Levere Music and Publishing Company would provide a musical score and soundtrack for expostulations if in exchange, George and I came to work there for free, <laughs> making, uh, uh, helping to market Levere Music and Publishing Company, which we did. Um, well, we held up our end of the deal. They did. We never did get a, uh, a a soundtrack for expostulations out of it. But that's how the two of us came together and started to stick together. Rudy went off to another college. John Russo, we knew John at the time, George certainly better than I because uh, John Russo and Rudy Ritchie were friends. They were boyhood friends who grew up together. Um, uh, John Russo went off to college in West Virginia, (laughs) so he wasn't around. Uh Richard Ritchie, who uh, was another uh, one of the people that I met, Richard was Rudy's cousin. Uh, meeting Richard, um, Richard helped us a lot, but then Richard enlisted, uh, after he got out of college, he enlisted in the Navy. So it only left George and me to kind of cobble together whatever it was going to be that we were going to do finish expostulations and move on with the rest of our lives. Sorry for such a long answer. No,
1: that's fantastic. What, amazing. A, what an inspiring story. And you know, thank God it's yes. thank God for the Pittsburgh Playhouse and thank God for Rudy Ritchie in <laughs> introducing you guys. Um it's such a beautiful story. It's just
3: so inspiring to hear. So it's, it's nothing to be, you know, sorry about.
1: Yeah. Um
3: I, would, I mean
0: to tell you this that we, we really didn't have two nickels to rub together. George had a wealthy doctor uh, as an uncle in New York, and he got his uncle, uh, Monroe Udell, to buy him a 16-millimeter Bolex camera, which is what Expostulations was being filmed with. So through the generosity of Uncle Monroe Udell, um, he was, George was wow. able to get uh, this Bolex camera. Otherwise, uh, I, it would have taken us quite some time sure. to, you know, put enough equipment together to make expostulate
1: You'd have to do, do some overtime in, with the meat truck.
0: Exactly. Yeah.
1: <laughs> so you you guys formed a, a production company called The Latent Image, um, specializing in commercials and industrial films. What was the first ever job that you guys were commissioned to do? Um, with uh, the latent image,
0: uh, we we decided after our disappointing episode at Levere Music and Publishing Company, George and I decided because Levere was going nowhere. Uh, all they all they had they had great musicians, great musicians, but um, the owner of the company. He was he was going nowhere. The musicians didn't like him. He was ruffling feathers all the time.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So George and I left. We stopped doing our marketing work for them. And um, through Richard Ritchie, he found us on the south side of Pittsburgh, um, the section of the city called the south side. He found us a $65 a month storefront,
2: Mm.
0: uh, which we opened called the Latent Image. That was in 1960, late 1961. Uh, We finally incorporated Latent Image in 1963. But in 1961, we figured you know, we got a Bolex camera, we've got an unfinished film, neither of us have jobs. <clears throat> We'd better do something to keep groceries on our table because, uh, you know, who, who's gonna support a couple of uh, guys who wanna make a film? Mm. Uh, and the answer to that is no one. So we figured we better use our wits and imagination So we said, okay, how about if we start making TV commercials and business films and that kind of thing, it'll give us filmmaking experience at the same time uh, if we can only persuade these advertising and business people to try us out on a couple of jobs. So the very, very first job we got There is an organization here in Pittsburgh, a science organization, which is still in business. It is called the Buell Planetarium. Back in the early 60s, uh, space exploration was all the rage. So, the people at Buell Planetarium and their advertising agency had uh, an idea that they wanted to show a rocket ship landing on the moon. Right. And they went to, um, they got the idea that they wanted to do a, to boost uh, attendance at the Buell Planetarium. Uh, They wanted to put a TV, uh, uh, have a TV spot that showed a rocket ship actually landing on the moon. Uh, through their advertising agency, which was an agency called Bond and Star. And a guy by the name of Larry Anderson was the account guy who went to various companies in Pittsburgh who were making films at the time and said what they wanted to do, and everyone turned them down. They said, we, we don't know how to do that. That's that's Hollywood stuff. We, we can't do that. Yeah. We came to the late image and we of course said of course we'll we can do that for you um, <laughs> which we had no clue as to how we were going to pull it off if they said yes well they did say yes so <laughs> here we go with our bolex camera
1: the fake lunar fake lunar landing what is it like a fake lunar landing you had to
0: right now well one of the things one of the key props that they provided for us was a huge, I want to say it was about eight by ten foot, uh, maybe it was eight by eight. We could get it in a truck, I know that. They made a plaster of Paris model of a moonscape and it looked great, except that was at their place and we needed to have that moonscape at the late image, So um, we we get together with Larry Anderson, the the people from the real planetarium, and persuade them that we know how to make uh, a small rocket ship land on the moon. Oh, look, here we've got this piece of this movie we're working on, Expostulations. We got a, a spacecraft, a tiny spacecraft to land in a snow cone obviously we can make a rocket land on, on your fantastic moonscape. They bought our story. Um, Mark, or, uh, Rudy Ritchie's brother, Mark, who was a few years younger than Rudy, um, was a bona fide um, uh, genius of mathematics. Uh, He was putting computers together, building them before anyone even knew what a computer was. He was also an amateur rocketeer. So we called Mark. We said, hey, Mark, we've got this job uh, for uh, Buell Planetarium and we have to make it look as though an actual rocket is landing on the moon. Well, we Mark helped us out immensely. He, um, he helped us build scale model rockets that he felt was what rockets might look like that could get you to the moon. Um, we uh, rigged them with small copper tubes inside of these rockets uh, and insulated them from the plastic bo- body of the the rockets and mark actually made small quantity batches of what is very close to solid rocket fuel wow so we were able to uh with eyedroppers pour this uh, force this uh miniature solid rocket fuel into these copper tubes. Uh, and it it looked it, it looked as authentic as you could get under those circumstances. And we tested it and it looked great. And um, there's a side story that I won't get into right now, but uh, that project worked so well. We shot it in 16 millimeter, That project worked so well, the Buell Planetarium paid us to blow it up that 16 millimeter, blow it up to 35 millimeter so they could run these advertising trailers in theaters throughout uh, Western Pennsylvania to additionally boost traffic for people wanting to come to the real Buell Planetarium, learn about the stars and the universe and heavens. And it was a great promotion that worked out. And we had a, a very nice sales tool that we could then use to persuade other people, hey, these guys yeah. these guys will do anything. And they made it look great. Uh, so that really started to grow our business at Leighton Image.
3: When you started, I re- I remember reading or hearing somewhere that there were six people forming the um, the the company, basically, uh, and that each of you had sort of like a more experience and more expertise in certain areas, which ultimately was what got George to direct Night of the Living Dead because he was the only one, not the only one, but he was the one that had more experience in directing. And I was wondering what... what what actually was your expertise or like your position within the latent image?
0: Uh, it's kind of an embarrassing answer, but my, uh, my expertise was acting and bullshit. <laughs> um, I, became, I became the latent image bullshit artist who could uh, sell practically anything to anyone.
3: Well, so, yeah, that's, that's actually very important because it's, it's he's the guy who brings in the customs, isn't
0: it? It's a great skill. Yeah. Well, um, from the very beginning, there was no doubt that George was the leader. He was the creative leader. Uh, and he, he was, um, in fact, the inspirational leader. Um, but believe it or not, Back in those very early days, George had some self-doubts, um, as, as we all do as we're growing up. I mean, we're a couple of guys in our early 20s trying to cobble together a, a piece of a, a, a business that will pay us money, that we can l- learn our craft and eventually make what we called a real movie. Uh, so we did. We, we grew the business to the point where we could start hiring people to work with us at, uh, at Leighton Image. One of the people that we hired was a guy by the name of Larry Anderson, who was indeed the advertising guy who gave us our first job. He was impressed enough with what we were able to do and he could speak the advertising language. So we hired him to help us sell more projects, which he did. Um, There were a few other people uh, that came along. Uh, My brother Gary, from the time he was in high school, he started to work with us as a crew person and learned the business very well and John Russo was probably, in terms of creativity, uh, John Russo was probably uh, the key hire that, that we made. John went from uh, four years of college at the University of West Virginia into a couple of years in the Army and then a short stint as a teacher in uh, the uh, Clareton public school System. Uh, but John, while he was in the army, communicated mostly with George because he knew George better than me, and George told him, uh, John yearned to learn the movie business, and here he is, tucked away in the army, uh, thinking, ah, uh, Russ and George are building this company, and so eager that one of these days maybe I can work with him. And George told him when he got out of the army we would have a job for him, which we did. Uh, well, he he went to teaching for a short period and it was, I think, less than a year. And he came to work with us at Latent Image. I think that was in 1964. Uh, <clears throat> but We were hiring people, training people, Uh, Bill Heinzman, the guy who ended up playing the cemetery zombie, uh, the the number one zombie. He came to work for us uh, as a still photographer. In addition to, back in those days in the late image, in addition to shooting a movie film, we also shot stills. And Bill was a very accomplished still photographer, so we bought all the equipment, cameras, darkroom, all of that stuff, and and Bill was our principal still photographer, as well as working on, on movie sets as well. So it was it was kind of learn as you go. Um, there, there was no job that we would say no to. The only job that we ever turned down was a still photography job. This was on the south side, this, this blue collar suburb of Pittsburgh, close suburb of Pittsburgh, uh, where, where there was a lot of uh, steel mills and, and mill families and that kind of thing. Someone came to the latent image one day and asked us if we would take a still photograph of their recently departed family member in a casket in a funeral home, and we we turned it down. He said, "No, we don't."
3: I can see why. <laughs> and,
0: and, well, I, I'm not even sure now why, as I talk about it, I'm not even sure why we turned it down, but it was just simply not our cup of tea, Yeah. Uh, given what we ended up doing. Yeah,
1: exactly, yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> it's quite yeah. ironic, yeah, Um. Uh, so So, Night of the Living Dead has been identified as the, the first ever modern zombie movie, And um, like how did the idea sort of come, you know, you guys were making commercials, where did the idea come from to kind of sort of jump in and make a, a feature length horror movie, you know, bringing the dead back to life, Where? when did that
0: come around? Well, it was always the goal of latent image to make what we referred to as a real film, being a film that you could go to a movie theater and watch. Um, it, it was again a convergence of um, uh, circumstances that led us to that, as our commercial business was growing at the latent image. Um, We were commissioned by a large advertising agency to do um, a project in 1966. Uh, It was Tourist Development, uh, Pennsylvania and Pittsburgh uh, in the fall foliage season is one of the places in the United States that is magnificent with fall foliage colors. And the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania hired latent image through this large advertising agency to make promotional films in 1966 for the following year called Autumn in Pennsylvania. And they wanted it filmed in 35 millimeter and they wanted it filmed in CinemaScope. We didn't have a 35 millimeter camera. CinemaScope was easy enough to fix. We just rented uh, uh, an anamorphic lens, but that project in 1966, commercial project, enabled us to buy our first 35 millimeter camera. And we rented the, the CinemaScope lenses to put on it And um, that turned out magnificently. Um, Original music score and all of that. Um, So now we have lights, we have sound equipment, we have everything, and now we have a 35 millimeter camera. All of the ingredients that we need to make our own real movie now. On television, on Saturday nights, late night Saturdays, there was a program that was hosted by Bill Cardill called Chiller Theater. Chiller Theater was a very, very popular television show, and Bill Cardill's personality certainly embellished the popularity of the show but the quality of films that they would show on that film uh, on that show were frankly not very good Um, and george and i would watch them and russo by that time was working with us and we would watch these movies on chiller theater and think geez a television station bought these movies that are kind of crappy um, you know, attack of the crab monsters, and you can see 2 before's 4s hanging out of the <laughs> monster. And it just, it just simply wasn't very scary. And we said, well, if we can't do something that is at least as good as that, we might as well stick to TV commercials. And so we were inspired by bad B-movies. Now we have a 35 millimeter camera, we've got lights, we've got recording equipment, we've got everything we need. <clears throat> and uh, in the, at Christmas, over the Christmas holiday in 1966, this was after we successfully delivered these films to be used the, the next, uh, the upcoming year by the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania Uh, George takes some time off at Christmas and he goes away and he writes an outline and the early pages of the script that would become Night of the Living Dead. He comes back to the office and we're all excited. Hey, this is a great start. And um, George and John Russo Rudy Rich, or, uh, Richard Ritchie was home from the Navy by that time and we helped him get a job uh, in the advertising business in Pittsburgh and Russo Romero and Ritchie are at a local bar having lunch one afternoon and they concoct the idea okay now we got everything we need let's make a, like a movie, so they come back from lunch, Richard went back to his advertising job, Russo and George come back, and they say um, to me, okay, what do you think? Let's make this movie, and um, we, we, then it became a matter of scrounging together the money, but the creative idea was kicked off at that lunch. And we decided, okay, here's what we'll do. Uh, We know that there's some pretty non-scary films. How about we do something that is better than what Bill Cardill is showing on his Saturday night show, and maybe somebody will buy this movie from us. And that's actually how it got, literally how it got started.
1: It's incredible considering what the movie became, what it is you know today it's absolutely incredible but are be. you
0: sure i'm not jabbering too much
1: no oh absolutely not we uh, we love these stories no please. pleasure to hear you it's, it's an absolute pleasure to hear I, you talk no please it's just we i could listen to you talk all night man so just absolutely yeah
3: it's amazing that i mean all the information you're
1: giving us is, is absolutely
3: like priceless it's uh, i i love hearing it I'm mesmerized, literally. I'm mesmerized. <laughs> mesmerized. I'm giving
0: it all away now. My memoirs won't be worth anything. <laughs> <laughs> I think this will be.
1: Wonderful. This is every every horror fan's dream to to sit here and chat with you about stuff like this. It's it's just incredible, and I still have to kind of pinch myself to, to you know I'm I'm chatting to you. you no, know, it's, it's incredible. Um, I think if. Your mind,
3: Dean, I could jump in with the question relating to the fact that, you know, we're getting to the point where you kind of like getting started on Night of the Living Dead. Yeah. Because it's something that's always played with my mind, um, and specifically is the fact that um, every interview that I've heard George Romero give about, you know, how he came to direct Night of the Living Dead, is always said simply, well, you know, amongst all of us, I was the one who had more experience in directing, so I directed it. Um, now, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a movie lover. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert, but I, I understand usually when there is a movie, that is someone who's chosen to direct because he has a vision about, you know, how the movie needs to come together. But it, George Romero never mentioned having a vision so i was always i've always wondered if someone else had stood out from the rest of you guys and said right you know i want to bring a vision to life so i would like to direct this movie would the world have lost like such an incredible director which was you know in in fact which george romero turned out to be like you know everything that followed night of the living dead that's so much amazing stuff I mean, he never said that he wanted to do it. He just said, I did it because I was the one who had more experience. What's your take on that? Like, um, was there ever a risk, you know, that George Romero didn't kind of end up being the amazing director he turned out to be?
0: Uh, uh, there was a risk. I don't know how great it was, but there, uh understand that as... When, when George started this, uh, the outline and the beginning of the script, that's literally what it was. And then like all jobs, whether it was a rocket ship to the moon or whatever it was, we would sit around and we'd say, okay, uh, how the hell do we pull this off? And it was a lot of roundtable discussions about, okay. What should this be? And literally, what if conversations in these roundtable discussions? Um, Russo uh, was always the um, was always the the writer. He did become a film uh, maker and a very good one, uh, but his forte was more the writing. And it was George's too, but the two of it would have these roundtable discussions. And the two of so them. Can I
3: can I just say one thing? So basically, rather than a one man's vision, all all these early stages of latent image was more of like a collective vision, basically, rather than
0: one one person. Only up to a point. We would have the roundtable discussions and the what ifs and the what ifs, and then George and Russo would go away by themselves, and they would they would refine those ideas into what eventually became the story. Now, between the two of them, I don't exactly know whose idea was uh, whose idea was what. But the two of them uh, labored over the storytelling aspects of *Night of the Living Dead*. Then George's eye for design, uh, George's eye for uh, editorial continuity, all started to kick in, and and that's when George really hit his stride Uh, because um, uh, as we were blocking out various scenes and shots and so forth, uh, George would on the spur of the moment sometimes, now he maybe worked it out in his head prior, but he would say, okay, um, here I'm going to take the camera out of the big cumbersome sound blimp that we have it in, the 35 millimeter camera. And I'm going to hand hold it because I want to be lying on my back in the middle of the living room as Ben tears apart the the dining room table, you know. And that's what he would do. And that's where George's particular knack for design for composition um, that's that's where that all kicked in. None of us, given. Uh, what we'd been through none of us had that particular skill that george had and that eye for composition um, and how am i going to if i'm if i'm lying on my back in this shot and ben is tearing apart a table how am i going to what will that cut to that's where that's all where, where george's head came into play
1: Amazing.
3: And,
0: and that was that was complete Romero territory.
1: Incredible. Wow. I get goosebumps listening to you hear these stories. Ooh, I was going to say the
3: same. <laughs> I get goosebumps. It's crazy.
1: I mean, um, gosh. Russ, uh, Russ, how did you end up acting in Night of the Living Dead? Was it because of any previous acting abilities or was it more of like an act of convenience because everyone on the set was kind of pitching in with various different jobs and... You hit the nail
0: on the head with the second one. We (laughs) we were getting closer and closer and closer to beginning filming in the summer of 1967. And we had no Johnny. Uh, We had everybody else, all of the cast members. Uh, One of the things that we did early on is we teamed up with Carl Hardman and Marilyn Eastman who had an audio production service in Pittsburgh. And uh, they were doing in audio production and, um, and I must say big time um, uh, sales presentations, uh, the Paris Air Show, <coughs> that kind of stuff. <clears throat> uh, Univac, a big computer company at the time was one of their customers. And they they were doing presentation pieces for the Paris air show and and rather heady kind of business presentations. Um, And Carl was around, we knew Carl, uh, we we had worked with them a lot. And we decided that uh, to increase our investor scope for Night of the Living Dead, that we would take on Uh, another professional company, uh, invite them in as partners, uh, and we set up a company called Image 10 Incorporated. And there were 10 of us, uh, including Carl and Marilyn, Russo, George, myself, Rudy, Richard, my brother Gary, uh, Vince Servinsky, who was our office manager, Um, uh, an attorney that we that we knew that that Rudy Ritchie primarily knew, he came in as a partner, and his contribution was all the legal work. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, we ended up ten of us. Uh, we put up $600 each, and that gave us enough seed money to get started. And that's that's how we started uh, filming. But back to the question: Is how did how did I become Johnny? We were simply running out of time. And George said, why don't you be Johnny? Judy O'Day and I looked enough alike that we could just quasi-pass as brother and sister. So I, I would like to tell you, oh, there were hundreds of actors who wanted that job. Uh, it was convenience. And uh, so I became Johnny.
1: Incredible. brilliant. Um, if, if I'm not mistaken, Johnny is the only character in Night of the Living Dead that we see both alive and dead. Yes. And so, for example, so were Johnny's driving gloves, um, were they used as some sort of like a wardrobe signature? So when you see them reappear later on on the the white door frame, you're like, oh, there's Johnny, there's the-
0: Well, I wanted to do something that distinguished Johnny from, first of all, he gets killed off in the first seven or eight minutes of the yeah. film, the audience as the film goes on almost forgets about Johnny other than Barbara yearning for him. We have to get to Johnny, Johnny's out there, he, Johnny has the keys, all that yeah. stuff. Yeah. The audience, if it wasn't for those reminders, the audience getting swept up in the storytelling would kind of forget that it, who Johnny was. Yeah. So I decided that Uh, Since my, when he comes back, my glasses would be gone, it would be nighttime, uh, I'd be surrounded by these other things. In the opening of the film, it's why I tampered so much and made such a deal out of putting on the driving gloves. Because I wanted that to register as a wardrobe signature with the audience, that when Johnny returned. And the first thing you see is that black gloved hand coming up on the white, white door frame. There's there's no doubt in your mind. Uh oh, Johnny is indeed back. <laughs>
1: that's such great attention to detail. Excellent. <coughs> you got that right, Dean. I'm sorry. What? I was saying you got
3: that right, Dean. I mean, I, I never I never thought of that, and that's very clever, actually.
1: The attention to detail. Um, talking of so, well, so the. Let,
0: let me just interrupt for a second. Yeah, sure. Those, those attentions to detail, are, the kinds of things that we learned along the way. You know, some people uh, scoff, at making TV commercials, and it it was, uh, it was not the favorite time of our lives, actually, uh, but. One of the disciplines that it taught us was attention to detail, because if you screw up something in somebody's TV commercial, fixing it generally came out of our pocket. So we always wanted to be like in chess, you know, a couple of steps ahead.
1: Brilliant. Um, So let's talk about the the iconic line, which... I can't imagine how many times people have asked you to say it oh. or <laughs> we're going to do it later <laughs> um, when we round up um, or uh, sign it on autographs. I bet that, you know, um, it crops up everywhere in in modern day cinema. I, I, you know, a horror movie. There it is, you know, it so many movies. I can't even recall. It's such a classic line. Um, what was that in the script or did you ad lib that? And and does it blow your mind like just how iconic that lines become?
0: Well, to answer the second part first, I can't believe it. I mean, that one phrase that I think we may be recorded two or at the most three times
2: Mm.
0: changed my life forever. Um, The line was not exactly written that way. Um, And throughout Night of the Living Dead, the actors were given the... Uh, opportunity to adjust the lines as to how they would say them. Um, And it just struck me that in the moment, um, I I just changed the phrasing very slightly uh, to that coming to get you, Barbara, as, as he's taunting her with, first of all, he doesn't want to be there. You know, and he's taunting her with, come on, let's go. It's a long way back, and blah, 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 blah. It just struck me that that was more immediate. To deliver the line that way was more immediate than exactly the way it was written. Incredible. And it changed my life.
1: I, I think I've got at least about three different T-shirts with that line on it. It's, it's so iconic, it really is, and even just you saying it to me right then, there's another goosebump moment. <laughs> <laughs> I met George one time many years ago. I was lucky enough to meet him. I met him and Greg Nicotero together at a signing in London.
0: Ah, oh, great! That's wonderful. And Nick is uh, a great guy too.
1: And you know what? So my, a friend, a friend of mine, Jenny. She she works in the in the film industry. She's she's a PA to a lot of stars when they come over to London. And uh, she looks. She's looked after Brad Pitt, Johnny Depp, all these big stars. Anyway, so I'm queuing up outside this building at like seven thirty in the morning to meet George on a freezing cold day, and the car pulls up, and Jenny gets out of the car with George. I was like, "Oh my god, <laughs> <laughs> what are you standing in a car with George Romero!" Like, were you were you man. not expecting that? No, no. Well, I could have said because I've been. I went to school with Jenny, and I, I, I said she, she she had no idea that I was a horror fan. She had no idea that I liked George Romero. Well, loved George Romero. And she just kind of hopped out of the car with him. I was like, what are you doing in the car with George Romero? <laughs> <laughs> but she she was looking after him and she said, Oh, he was such a sweetheart. And and he was when we met him as well. He signed yeah. a couple of items for me, and he was really lovely, really, really lovely. He was car. a true gentleman,
3: wasn't he? He was a true
1: gentleman. Yeah, he really Absolutely. was we, we didn't get a lot of time, obviously, because when you meet at uh, these things, you have to use it's a bit of a you know revolving door of people coming through. But you know what the, you
0: what you saw was the real George Romero. That's the way it was. Oh, he was great. He was great, and he signed this for
1: me. Sorry, I'm going to grab it, real, grab it real quick. He signed this uh, to Dean's Stay scared. Yep, his perfect, absolutely perfect. So yeah, I'll try. i tr- keep this. I treasure this. Um, but yeah, great. Um, so what, Russ? What was an average day on set like on the movie? Was it chaos?
0: They were were very long days. Um, Most of it was at night. The the cemetery scene was, uh, ironically, the very first day of shooting (laughs) and the very last day of shooting. Um, Because, you know, once Barbara makes the run for the house and then it becomes night and it becomes Night of the Living Dead, most of our scenes were shot at night, Um, when one of my jobs as producer was to make arrangements for locations and so forth. And I uh, found, through an intern who was working for us at Leighton Image, uh, found uh, this farmhouse in Evans City that was owned by Mr. Gass, and I drove out to Evan City to talk to Mr. Gass to see if we could make an arrangement to rent this farmhouse that we knew was unused, um, and ordinarily when you're making a film, the, the deal is that you will leave the location in as good or better condition as you found it. Well, in Night of the Living Dead, that was a very hard uh, commitment to keep without getting into a lot of repair work and repair costs. So as luck would have it, Mr. Gass rented us the entire farm property uh, for, for the entire summer and fall of 1967 because when we were finished with the filming it was his intention to tear it down and make another use of the land um, as it turned out we finished filming and he didn't he didn't tear it down for about a year but eventually uh, he did tear it down so the only thing that is left of the original farmhouse is the foundation that the house sat on all the trees are still there and that kind of thing but the farmhouse itself is gone. Had I known then what I know now, I would have probably tried to make a deal to buy the property from them.
1: Sure. I heard that the farmhouse didn't have any work in plumbing. No water on set. How did you guys cope with that? Bathroom breaks must have been a nightmare.
0: <laughs> water from a stream with pails that we would you know, bring up in the morning, so for flushing the toilets and stuff like that. Sure. And then in the evening, the actors were all housed at uh, at local motels and that kind of thing for showering. But on set, it was no, uh, it, it was not a picnic. We did not have running plumbing. Um, was you was you a horror fan before Night of the Living Dead? No. Um, other than other than watching Chiller Theater. um uh, oh. But because horror, one of the things that we came to understand pretty early on uh, was that horror was an easy entry point for us as young filmmakers. So we figured, again, you know, if if crappy movies were showing up on TV, we should be able to do something that was better than the crappy movies that we saw.
1: Yeah. Did you guys have sort of full creative control as well when you were making the movie? Absolutely.
0: That is probably the biggest secret of the success of Night of the Living Dead. Live or die, we had nobody looking over our shoulders. We self-financed the picture so we didn't have anybody to, quote, report to. We did the film the way we wanted to do it. We edited the film the way we wanted to edit it and that was that. And when it came to uh, whether distributors wanted it, this is it. Take it or leave it other than very minor changes. And I mean minor changes. Mm. Um, we made no compromises with, with a distributor at all.
1: Sure. As it As it was your first ever feature film like hasn't success of the movie been surreal for you
0: over the years? It still is. It's the film is fifty-two years old and yeah. it's it is seriously probably more popular now than it was when it was first released.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: And that, that to me is is mind blowing that something, some project that I worked on other than the Buell Planetarium rocket ship landing on moon, <laughs> Which by the way, I would love to find a copy of that. So far, we've not been successful in finding a copy of that, but I i haven't given up hope yet. Um, Did he, it's kind blowing to me, that's something that we all worked on and poured our hearts and souls into uh, during the summer of uh, 1967 is still around over 50 years later. It's amazing to
1: me. Yeah, it's incredible. Have you have, um, uh, You do a lot of conventions, um, or over the years you've done a lot of conventions and fandom events. How do you find the, the horror fans? Because we, we can be quite a kooky bunch. So, how, how, have you had any weird, bizarre fan moments, or are they generally? Actually,
0: no, on a whole, um, I find horror fans, and if if you took a snapshot of a horror convention, you see a lot of tattooed people, you see a lot of piercings, you see a lot of this, and you could, if you allowed yourself, to become somewhat skeptical. I have found the, the horror film crowd to be warm engaging respectful and none of the things that if if you made your judgment based purely on tattoos and piercings you'd probably never talk to these people it is just the opposite
1: yeah that's such a great answer that is a brilliant answer i have all of those things piercings tattoos but (laughs) i'm a lovely guy
3: (laughs) i'm imagining that Releasing Night of the Living Dead, and with you know, with the the big waves that it made. I mean, maybe not initially, but you know, you could see where it was going. What happened to late image after the release of like, how long did it survive after? What did he did he completely restructure and change the type of work that he, did he stop doing commercials and focus? What? What? Because there, there's not much information out there about the you know the. Um, the life after Night of the Living Dead, of, of, you know, later later image?
0: Um, It's a good question. Uh, The reason that there's not a a whole lot of information about the transition of what happened, it is uh, in 1970 is when George's and my business partnership fell apart. Um, One of the reasons for that is... um, Uh, There were two reasons, Um, one really big one. Um, George wanted to focus purely on feature films, and I understand that. But in 1970, uh, in Pittsburgh, if your business was structured solely on making feature films, uh, that was a very tough go. It was still to Pittsburgh a at those in those days, it was a foreign business. People didn't understand it. They, they just TV commercials, nah, nah, business films nah, that we can understand but feature films only not so much. So you have the decision to make either you pull up your Pittsburgh roots where you have enormous local support and go to Hollywood. And become a completely small fish in a rather large pond, or do you stay in your hometown and try to build on what you've been building? And um, I, George, and I came to uh, an agreement that if he wanted to continue to do that, all only feature films, that it was best if we stayed friends but parted company, which is what we did. There was one other component to that, which George made a business decision that I didn't agree with. Um, It it had to do with hiring uh, two new people, one of whom became George's wife. A woman by the name of Nancy McKim. Um, Nancy, I had no problem with, none whatsoever. Uh, But one of the people that she wanted to bring with her into this partnership was a guy that I just could not abide. He was, in my opinion, a complete phony baloney. And I, I told George, I said, this is a guy who when, when we were doing TV commercials for him, the crew would make fun of him because of his ineptness. And, and you want to bring him into our inner circle. I, I can't abide that. Uh, when George and I first set up the latent image, one of the ways that we got our startup money was from his uncle, Monroe Udell. And we, for that, we gave Monroe Udell certain shares in the latent image. Beyond that, George and I shared everything 50-50. And we had a handshake deal that Monroe's shares would never become a business factor. Well, in this particular business decision, Monroe's shares did become a factor. And that's when we decided that we would part company as friends, but part company. That didn't end our friendship. I mean, uh, we were friends until he died. Yeah. But uh,
3: That is such an interesting story. I had no idea. I never, never, never heard of that. And I, I'm constantly looking for things. I'm constantly checking everything i
1: can get my my you know eyes on um russ what we do um so each week uh, we ask our guest to ask next week's guest a question so we're creating a bit of a chain it's just a bit of fun um uh-huh. and last week we talked to bob elmore from the texas chainsaw massacre 2 uh-huh. uh, and and we said to bob next week we've got russ on the show um so can you put a question to russ and, and Bob's question to you was, because he obviously he played an iconic horror character. So his question to you was, how do you feel um, having played an iconic horror character yourself? He's Leatherface, the guy with the chainsaw, yes.
3: basically.
0: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, well, <laughs> uh, we icons <laughs> <when> we <laughs> get together. Um <laughs> There's, there is no way to describe it other than the fact, truthfully, that we got lucky. Um, there is nothing that separates him from a hundred other actors, nothing that separates me from a hundred other actors. We just happen to get lucky. And I hope that we can, it, in our uh, celebrity uh, can remain gracious um, I've I've seen people who because they've had some success on the screen let that go to their head a little bit and frankly it's not very flattering as an as a person I I don't see the reason for it I, you know, not to become pedantic, but we we all put our shoes and pants on the, pretty much the same way. Uh, we all get through life pretty much the same way, with the same headaches, the same uh, high spots, the same low spots. And to become a celebrity for a weekend makes no sense to me. And I'm That's pretty good. sure he feels the same way.
3: Yeah sure definitely.
0: it does well what, what he was saying basically
3: is like um uh the gist of what he was saying that is very similar to what you're trying to say to mean that it doesn't it, it doesn't make sense to sort of like because you get this spotlight of celebrity you shouldn't get let it go to your head what he was saying was it's not us it's the funds that make us. So we need to level with the funds because yeah. you know, we are where we are because of the funds and and how they, exactly. you know, they yeah. You guess. So yeah. there's no point treating them like they're inferior or lesser, you know.
0: Any time that you lose sight of the fact that a business like music, like film, uh, like performing art of any sort, it is a collaborative art. And part of that collaboration is the audience. And when you lose (laughs) sight of that is is when you get into pretty deep water. We're all in the same boat together. I tell a joke to make you laugh. You tell a joke to make me laugh. Okay. There's, come on. That's
1: such a great a
0: It's a shared uh, human responsibility.
1: It's a shame not, not, all celebrities share that view. <laughs> yeah, well, that's another another story. Another that is story. another story. Another story completely. Um, so next week we have on is a, a new director, a guy called Ryan Kruger, and he's just released his first feature film, uh, which has been picked up by Shudder, uh, called Fried Barry. He's doing really, really well with it. Um, so he's our guest next week. So. Do you have a question you could maybe put to Ryan, that we could ask him next week to
0: keep the chain going? Um, yeah, um, I would ask Brian if I were talking with him. Uh, it's not so much of a question that is as it is a thought. He has to make the decision. Uh, And when you start dealing with uh, distributors, uh, bigger media companies, Shutter and uh, AMC and some of those folks, sometimes they have a a tendency to want to push you around a little bit, uh, knock you about the head and shoulders. Sometimes it's justified. uh, Sometimes it isn't, and you have to make in my opinion, those decisions about um, what hill are you willing to die on. Um, it's um, because there, the, the fact that entertainment today is a collaboration. There, there are people who want to knock you off your high horse uh, whether they come from the accounting department or, or whether they they come from a, uh, an angry crew person <laughs> uh, sure. uh, you can't go through life um, keeping everyone happy what where do you draw the line in the sand sure. my advice would be very good pick, pick those pick those battles wisely right and and I think any, any young person has to be mindful of that. Uh, As long as, as long as you don't give up too much.
1: Sure.
0: I have no idea, to be honest with you, I have no idea what Night of the Living Dead would look like if we had some money people looking over our shoulder. I know this for sure. In 1967, if we wanted to hire a black guy as the lead that would have been that would have been a deal breaker sure yeah. they they would not have gone for that simply out of a business reason parts of the parts of uh, this country the USA still don't like the play night of the living dead because it's got a black guy in the lead it, it's it still rubs them in the wrong directions even though it's a classic film wow yeah In 67, that problem was a hundred times greater.
1: Yeah, of course. Of course. Incredible stuff. Russ, we cannot thank you you enough. What what did you say, Dean? I was just saying to Russ, Russ, we can't thank you enough for coming on to the podcast to chat with us, man. It's been an absolute pleasure to listen to your stories. I've literally just sat here in awe of you for the the last however long we've been talking. Um, So thank you very,
0: very much. You're quite welcome. Okay, Um, well, thank you, guys. Thank you for inviting me.
3: Thrill Seekers, listen up. If you love everything horror themes, then check out scaredirectory.co.uk. We have everything listed, from scare mazes, screen parks, overnight experiences, immersive theatre, zombie events and scary escape rooms. Simply type in your postcode to find the greatest events near you and across the whole of the UK. You'll find all the latest info and reviews on the UK's scariest attractions. And you can also leave your own reviews. Check Check
0: us out on on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter at ScareDirectory. Scary Thought of the Day
1: If you leave your mobile phone switched on all night, evil spirits can use it as a doorway
0: into your home. Like malevolent moths, the evil spirits are drawn to the light of the screen.
1: So do you really want to check that message in the middle of the night?
0: Scary thought of the day.